You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm your host. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Ali A. Alawi about Iraqi society and politics before, during, and after the coalition's invasion of Iraq. No, I think the Iraqis who came back uh, uh, after long years of exile were really quite shocked by the uh, deepening of sectarian divisions. Uh, there was always an awareness that there was... Uh, I mean, this is an issue that has been festering for uh, generations, if not for more than a thousand years. But uh, it never took the... Uh, confrontational or adversarial form that it did in the years of the Ba'ath. Matthew Lebanon, how Hamas embraces politics, charity, and terror in the Palestinian Authority. The U.S. State Department has cites an example where Hamas was burying caches of weapons under a playground for one of its kindergartens. Uh, in the Park Hotel uh, suicide bombing that led Israeli forces to reinvade the West Bank in 2003, uh, several of the bombers and their recruiters grew up through Hamas's uh, Islamic bloc student movement, which is part of the social wing of Hamas. Some of them were involved with Hamas singing troops. Um, others were involved with Hamas charities. Some of the mosques run by Hamas were used as dead drops, as not only for uh, communications, but also for the suicide bombing belts. And Joshua Kurtlancic on how China is using soft power in the international arena. To, I think, a number of developing countries, just the fact that China has succeeded economically so well is appealing. It's particularly appealing probably to authoritarian countries or sort of authoritarian countries like Vietnam or Syria or Iran. Those are all places where the Chinese model has been discussed. Stay tuned. Since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the story of both the initial hostilities and ensuing insurgency has been the main news story in the world's media. In The Occupation of Iraq, Winning the War, Losing the Peace, Ali A. Alawi has produced the first book about this period written by an insider in the post-Saddam Iraqi government. Ali A. Alawi is a senior advisor to the Prime Minister of Iraq. Since the coalition's invasion, he served as his country's first post-war civilian minister of defense, was elected to the Transitional National Assembly, and was appointed Minister of Finance under Dr. Ibrahim El Jafri. Ali Alawi, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. One of the main themes of your book is how the coalition authority so misread the nature and strength of the sectarian divisions in Iraq. Was this misreading limited to the CPA, or were Iraqis also caught off guard by the strength of sectarian divisions in their country? No, I think the Iraqis who came back uh, uh, after long years of exile were really quite shocked by the uh, deepening of sectarian divisions. Uh, there was always an awareness that there was... Uh, I mean, this is an issue that has been festering for... Uh, generations, if not for more than a thousand years, but uh, it never took the uh, confrontational or adversarial form that it did in the years of the Ba'ath. But uh, when they came into Iraq after the fall of the regime, the deepening and uh, widening also of sectarian divisions was far, far greater than had been anticipated. Uh, in terms of the uh, coalition itself, I think they grossly uh, underestimated, if not misrepresented, the extent of sectarian uh, problems in Iraq. 
because their uh, occupation working plan, as it were, was based on the existence of a substantial non-sectarian middle middle class, which was supposed to be the basis of the new uh, politics in Iraq. So both parties were, were caught completely off guard, but for different reasons. Your book, The Occupation of Iraq, Winning the War, Losing the Peace, is really the first book that takes a look at Iraqi political and civil society, both before, during, and after the coalition's invasion. What was the decision this, the coalitional provisional authority made that, in your opinion, most confused the Iraqi people? Well, there were a series, series of orders that came as a, as a result of uh, the establishment of the occupation authorities. I mean, they came, you know, swift and... Uh, uh, quick one after the other uh, they they dealt with with quite radical restructuring of Iraqi society which Iraqis generally were not uh, were not prepared or had not expected of course they had not had any experience before with any occupation authority so it was really not known there was a lot of uh, uh, concern and anxiety as to how an occupation authority would uh, would act but uh, the first uh, orders or the first uh, uh, they were in form of decrees, they were called orders, that were issued, dealt with dismantling, as it were, the structures of the Ba'athist state. And then it moved on to uh, uh, dis- dismantling uh, quite uh, important institutions that preceded the Ba'athist state, things like the the army and the Ministry of Defense and so on. So the extent and the sweep of these orders, I think, caught people again off guard. But... Uh, most Iraqis were in a daze when these things happened. I mean, it's not every day that uh, a country is occupied. And they were really quite uh, uncertain as to how to deal with this uh, strange breed of governors that came in on the heels of the liberating-slash-occupying army. You write quite a lot in the book about the degree to which the uh coalition provisional authority provided little oversight to the monies that they handed out to different parts of the Iraqi government. In your opinion, how rampant was corruption in the transitional national government? Well, we had really, I would say, five governments in Iraq since the overthrow of the, of the regime. The first government uh, is the straightforward military occupation and the Office for uh, Humanitarian and Reconstruction Aid, the ORHA. Uh, that went on for about two months. Uh, in that period, very little contracting was given, very little contract awards were made. Then we had a period where the CPA uh, had the run of the place, and there was no Iraqi counterpart, as it were. That lasted for a few months. And there, I think, the beginning of the uh, fast and loose uh, way in which cash was handled began to be established. Uh, corruption may may not have been that widespread in that period, but as I said, it was there was very little accountability for the use of large dollops of cash. Then you go into the formation of the uh, government, the first Iraqi government, that was still operating under the overall occupation authority. And there, the, the amount of leeway that the Iraqi ministries had was relatively small because the main decisions were still taken by the CPA. Corruption really exploded with the interim government, which was the first sovereign government, as it were. And there, not only were standards fast and loose, there were no standards. And uh, there was very little oversight and very little accountability. 
And that set the pattern, I think, for subsequent governments in the sense that uh, uh, ministerial prerogative was quite, quite uh, large and there was very little uh, oversight and accountability. And when there was, when people were caught with their hands in the, inside the cookie jar, and here I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, most of them were allowed to, to uh, get away with it. I mean, some people were caught in, a, in, in, a, in the net, but the main culprits got away. Mainly because I think they were uh, part of the entourage that came with the CPA, and therefore uh, exposing these people for corrupt practices may have implicated uh, their allies in the various uh, Western chanceries and in the various intelligence agencies which sponsored them. But corruption really exploded in a big way after the transfer of sovereignty in 2004, June 2004. You have an eye both on the Western media and also the Arab media. What's the one piece of information about Iraq that's in the Western media that you'd like to dispel? I think it's, it's to do with the recognition that the, the unintended consequences, as it were, of the war and the occupation were not given much, much attention. And as, as such, whatever uh, came out from official uh, statements and official policy was, in the early days, was quite readily accepted. I mean, there was very little questioning as to the official line that uh, governed the various uh, decisions made to justify. I'm not saying that the, uh, that the, uh, that the decision to overthrow a tyranny uh, by itself, I think, would have been a, a quite a fair reason for launching an invasion. But the, this was the ex post facto decision, as it were. This was after the fact. And the public uh, in the Western world uh, was led by people who were not that well informed about the conditions inside Iraq and by and large accepted the representations made. I think people have to be far more uh, questioning as to the true purpose of decisions taken and uh, recognize that the further away you go from, as it were, uh, the Western sphere, the more complex and different are these societies. And you can't really transfer uh, notions and concepts that you may think are universal to societies and countries that have had different historical experiences. So I think if I had to, uh, if I had to go back, I would have uh, made the case for for overthrowing the tyranny much more strongly, and gauged that that decision to a series of post-war decisions that would have built democracy and built uh, a kind of open society. Instead, we got a series of uh, of uh, measures and catch up uh, because the whole thing was not set in the appropriate or coherent context. What about the Arab media? No, the Arab media, I would say the opposite. I mean, the Arab media uh, ignored uh, the massive abuses that were taking place in Iraq and other Arab countries and uh, stuck to the, to the argument that uh, the sovereignty uh, of these countries are immune to international uh, scrutiny. And they, they, they of course, focused on the uh, overthrow of, 
of an established government, even though it was dictatorial, and allowed uh, huge abuses to go unrecorded because it would have disturbed, as it were, the Arab uh, uh, political order. So the Arab media uh, focused on the uh, sort of the outrageous uh, affront to national sovereignty that came from an invasion and occupation of the country and the threat that posed to other Arab countries, of course, linked it to sort of imperial designs and the other machinations without looking at the other side of the equation. That is, there was a tyrannical, brutal regime uh, which was in the middle of the Middle East and was tolerated. Uh, the, The Middle East system tolerated it in its midst without taking any measures to to change it or to uh, quarantine it. And I think this problem still continues. I mean, there is a uniform rejection of the consequences of the war. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of of, uh, terrible results that emanated from the invasion occupation of Iraq. I mean, not least the huge level of domestic violence. But there are also some, some good things, like the uh, beginning of a kind of democratic political system. Now, it may look frayed and, and, and weak and uh, abused now, but uh, it still is a, the beginning of a system. So it's, it's not all bleak, it's not all, it's not all bad. And the inability to, to look at the, the other aspects of it is also something that they should be faulted for. The Occupation of Iraq, Winning the War, Losing the Peace, can be found at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Ali Ayalawi, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. In January 2006, voters in the Palestinian Authority voted to give Hamas, a militant Islamic organization, the authority to form the next Palestinian government. In Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad. Matthew Levitt has written the first complete, fully documented portrait of Hamas and reveals the alarming extent of the organization's commitment to terror. Matthew Levitt is Senior Fellow and Director of the Stein Program on Terrorism, Intelligence, and Policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Matt Levitt, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hamas is viewed by some governments as a terrorist organization and by some governments as a humanitarian organization. How did they achieve this? Well, first, Hamas is viewed by most governments as a terrorist organization that engages in acts of terror and acts of charity. Uh, The way Hamas achieves this is by, in fact, doing just that. It engages in three types of activity, uh, terrorism and and other types of political violence, charitable activities, and political activities. Um, The fact is that Hamas is a unitary organization, and all three of these wings, the political, charitable, and social, uh, are run by the same individuals and serve one another's functions. But because Hamas is engaged in charitable work, there are governments that are uh, wary of cracking down on those activities because there are people in the West Bank and Gaza who are in desperate need of support. Can you give examples of how Hamas's humanitarian organization supports its terrorist organization? Sure. Hamas runs a network of charities and clinics and uh, kindergartens, etc., in the West Bank and Gaza. The U.S. State Department has, cites an example where Hamas was burying caches of weapons 
under a playground for one of its kindergartens. Uh, and the Park Hotel uh, suicide bombing that led Israeli forces to reinvade the West Bank in 2003, uh, several of the bombers and their recruiters grew up through Hamas's uh, Islamic bloc student movement, which is part of the social wing of Hamas. Some of them were involved with Hamas singing troops. Um, others were involved with Hamas charities. Some of the mosques run by Hamas were used as dead drops, as not only for uh, communications, but also for the suicide bombing belts. Hamas uses the charities as a means to uh, launder and transfer funds into the territories. Some of that money is used for humanitarian purposes, though much of that is earmarked in such a way as to build grassroots support for Hamas. But other parts of that fund, uh, those funds, are provided for other purposes. And so I document in my book many examples where Hamas uh, specifically created a charity as a means of getting money into the territories, not for charitable purposes, but for terrorist purposes. What are the political goals of Hamas? Hamas seeks an Islamist state in all of historic Palestine, which roughly coincides with British Mandate Palestine, including what is today all of uh, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. <clears throat> it's important to understand that from Hamas's point of view, there is no more room for the Jewish state of Israel than there is for a secular Palestinian state. Hamas is uh, the uh, very vocal and violent opposition to moderate secular uh, Palestinian leaders. Until last year, we would refer to that moderate secular leadership as the Palestinian Authority. Hamas now, in, since last January, uh, leads the Palestinian Authority, leads a coalition. Um, but its goals are to establish an Islamist state in all of historic Palestine. You mentioned the 2006 Palestinian elections. How was Hamas able to displace uh, the, its political rival, Fatah? First of all, it was able to use its social welfare network to uh, political benefit. And so there's lots of anecdotal evidence that the same lists of people who uh, are given money and foodstuffs every month by Hamas, <clears throat> those same lists were used uh, for political campaigning, that people were given an extra dose of rice or what have you. Um, but it's also true that Hamas is notoriously not corrupt, whereas Fatah, the main uh, part of the Palestinian Authority uh, that was in opposition to Hamas uh, is notoriously corrupt. I think that actually Hamas did not really win the election per se. They, uh, Fatah lost it. <clears throat> um, Hamas won by a very slim margin. <clears throat> they exercised uh, great political discipline, fielding one candidate per area, whereas Fatah did not and often fielded multiple candidates. Perhaps the best example is Kalkilia, a town in the northern West Bank where not only did Fatah field multiple candidates, but their primary candidate, who ran for mayor, was the former mayor of Kalkilia, who is one of the most notoriously corrupt individuals in the entire West Bank. And so it was as much a protest vote against Fatah as it was a vote for Hamas. And many, many people interviewed after the fact said, yes, I voted for Hamas, but not because I support their suicide bombing. I just think it's time for a change from Fatah. Others said, I voted for Hamas because you know, say what you will about Hamas and his other activities, but they're the only ones who are looking out for me, providing schooling for my children, health care, etc. The issue of financial support for Hamas is a part of a large part of your book, and you do a really good job out, you know, kind of laying out the money trail and how Hamas gets its money. Thank you. What's one of the things that, I guess, what's the main thing you want listeners to take away from how Hamas draws its, uh, draws its funding sources? 
Well, there are two parts to that question. You know, it draws its funding from multiple sources, and I'll get to that. But the key to the way it funds its activities is the fact that money is fungible and that money that is donated for one purpose can be used for another, um, and that's how Hamas functions. Hamas gets a tremendous amount of money from uh, Islamist NGOs worldwide, some of which are specifically set up to fund Hamas. Uh, the United States government believes that the Holy Land Foundation in Dallas, Texas is a case in point. Um, and others uh, are not intent on specifically funding Hamas. They are uh, being abused. Arguably, and I, I do argue in the book, there's a third kind in the middle, Islamist charities that are not specific to Hamas. They're not just Hamas charities. They finance a variety of Islamists, often radical activities, to include Hamas. And they get the money in, by and large, through the social welfare branch of the organization, specifically the zakat, or charity committees. Uh, and as we discussed already, those committees function uh, uh, as a means of laundering and transferring the money in. It's also the case that militants are employed by the committees, sheltered by the committees, etc. Um, so on the one hand, money is fungible, and they make great advantage of that. And on the other hand, they get a tremendous amount of money from NGOs, some from states, actual state sponsors of terror. Uh, the money money they get from Iran has, in fact, increased since Hamas came to government. Um, and then uh, smaller amounts from, from other places as well. Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Matthew Levitt, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. The growing economic power of the People's Republic of China has drawn both the admiration and concern from countries around the globe. In Charm Offensive, How China's Soft Power is Transforming the World, Joshua Kurtlancic looks at a little reported facet of China's growing power, its diplomatic and cultural offensive to win friends in both Southeast Asia and the developing world. Joshua Kurtlancic is special correspondent for the New Republic and visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Josh Kurtlancic, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. Thanks for having me. So now this book began for you when you were working in Thailand and when Thailand and Southeast Asia was going through the emerging markets financial crisis. What were you noticing in Thailand allow you to observe that China was beginning to make some diplomatic inroads into Southeast Asia? Um, well, it was the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s. And um, what had happened was that uh, initially when the crisis began in Thailand, the United States didn't really step in that aggressively in it. The Thai government was pretty unhappy that the U.S., who had been a longtime friend of Thailand, didn't really, at least at first, do that much. And around that time, I kind of started to notice that in its place, China was beginning to realize that there was a role for it to play. So at the time, China very publicly said it wasn't going to devalue its currency, and it provided some minimal amount of aid to Thailand. And though these things didn't necessarily provide such a huge boost to Thailand. They won China a lot of good public relations, a lot of good press. But at the same time, the U.S.'s image was kind of slipping. So I think at the time what I noticed was that China was beginning to realize that it could play a more substantial role. It was beginning to uh, advertise its role more effectively. and It was beginning to win a lot of good PR. And that was sort of the, only, the first days of China becoming more aggressive diplomatically. And that kind of provided the genesis of the book. And then 
that was now eight or nine years ago, but you see in later years since then, China's become much, much more sophisticated. But I think that was a place where it started. So in the book, you discuss how China is able to use its soft power in the international arena. Could you give us a definition of the term soft power? Well, there, there are a lot of different definitions. The original definition by Joe Nye, who was a professor at Harvard who kind of originally coined the term, was basically the ways in which a country can get another country or, or another actor to, to do what it wants, not by coercing them to do it, but by persuading them just because of the uh, appeal of their values and their culture and their ideas. Um, but I think that term has changed a little bit. In the book, basically, I talk about soft power essentially, not just persuading, but all types of power outside of the military sphere. So the appeal of China's culture and ideas, but also uh, the appeal of China's economy, and of Chinese aid, and Chinese investment. When Nye originally came up with the term, he didn't use a lot of those elements, like investment and aid, because he viewed them as more coercive than persuasive. But the the term has kind of been transformed in the last few years. And I think when Chinese government talks about it, they, they basically mean everything outside of the military sphere. So what are the parts of the Chinese model, particularly in economics and politics, that the Chinese government and the D- diplomatic corps tend to focus on in other countries? The Chinese government and diplomatic corps don't really focus on their model as a way of advertising it to other countries. In fact, they're very explicit about saying that they don't prescribe a model for other countries and that they don't suggest that other countries follow one model and that every country should follow their own road. Um, But I do think that there's kind of an implicit effort to show other nations, particularly developing nations, that China has developed economically quite successfully, although they still have problems quite successfully since they began to open the economy in the late 70s, um, that model is kind of one of moderate economic liberalization with some degree of state control and really no significant political liberalization. To, I think, a number of developing countries, just the fact that China has succeeded economically so well is appealing. It's particularly appealing probably to authoritarian countries or sort of Authoritarian countries like Vietnam or Syria or Iran, those are all places where the Chinese model has been discussed. Um, I don't think there's really yet been that serious analysis by a lot of leaders of these countries, Cuba is another one, of whether they could actually copy anything that China had done. Well, China is kind of a unique situation. But um, I think that you know all those countries, as well as many others, the leadership has at least started to study what China has done, and China kind of implicitly advertises what it's done by training economic officials and technocrats in these countries. Um, but that, just to go back, I mean, that's also at the same time that Chinese government leaders will say that they're not prescribing a model for anyone. Um, so it's, it's, it's not such an explicit prescribing, but there is, I think, some degree of implicit advertising. So does China have any specific goals in using this soft diplomatic and cultural power? Um, I think the major goal is that compared to 10 or 15 years ago when in a lot of developing countries China was viewed as a threat, either in Southeast Asia was viewed as a military threat. Um, there had been a series of dangerous incidents in the mid-90s where China lobbed missiles near Taiwan and China sent um, 
naval craft to seize islands in the South China Sea, so potentially a military threat. Other regions may be uh, economic threat, although it's Southeast Asia an economic threat, too, in that what China does well, textiles, electronics, others, are similar to what a number of Southeast Asian countries had made their livelihood on. So I think a lot of China's charm offensive is designed to reduce fears from the past of China as a threat and to promote China as kind of a benign player. And the more that Beijing is successful at doing that, the more popular it becomes in uh, among average people in countries, then the more it's going to be able to achieve all the types of things that a responsible power could get. So alliances, trade agreements, um, defense cooperation, joint military exercises, oil and gas investment. Uh, all of those things are much less likely to happen if countries have significant fears of China. Um, everything, I think, flows from that major goal. So China would like to be able to have much more access to oil and gas, particularly in the developing world, because China's resources starved. China would like, I think, more substantial alliances in a number of regions. China would like, uh, in some cases, to reduce the influence of Taiwan or Japan, maybe even the U.S. But all those have to flow from uh, Beijing being perceived as a, as a more benign actor than it once was. Charm Offensive is the inaugural book in the New Republic Yale University Press series a series of books and pamphlets on a range of perspectives on American and international politics, as well as the world of arts, letters, and culture. Charm Offensive, How China Saw Powers Transforming the World, is on sale now at both real and virtual booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Joshua Kurtlancic, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Currently, Yale University Press is having a half-off sale on selected titles. To get in on these great deals, just go to www.yalebooks.com and click on the half-off sale banner. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Dig, or Odeo, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments about the show, please feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast, which is engineered by Stephen Cray and Palatine Recordings. Executive producer is Dan Lee. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.